Hi, I'm Grace. And I'm Dalton. Welcome back to another episode of Season 8 of Fly on the Wall. Our guest this week is Jessica Taylor, Senate and Governor's Editor for the Cook Political Report. Previously, she was a political reporter for National Public Radio, where she covered elections and breaking news ranging from the White House to Congress. Her coverage of campaigns and elections has also appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, and numerous other publications. But before she shares some of her insights and experiences, don't forget to follow us on social media. We are at Fly on the Wall Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And if you have any questions or comments, feel free to email us at flyonthewallpodcast at gmail.com. Jessica, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. So our first question is, for our listeners who may not know of your background, what sparked your interest in journalism and what have you enjoyed most about covering politics? Um, so I'm from a really small town in Tennessee. It's called Elizabethton. It's sort of in the, it's in Northeast Tennessee. So sort of where Tennessee, North Carolina and Virginia all meet. And I laugh and say that actually my first writing jobs were obituaries. Um, my dad was manager of a funeral home. And so I used to help him write obituaries actually. (laughs) And I just always love to read. And every morning at the table, for breakfast, my dad would be checking the obituaries, making sure that they were right. And he just sort of hand me the rest of the paper. So I'd start reading the newspaper. Um, so we, we were, you know, we watched the news every night together and different things. And um, in my elementary school, actually, I was sort of put in like a gifted and talented program. And we were told to, I think we had to come up with a project or something. I was probably in second grade at this point, And I actually decided that I wanted to make a newspaper. I don't know if it was from like watching all of, you know, reading all the newspapers and helping my dad write things that went in the paper. Um, but uh, I, so I made, it was called the pirate press, which was our school mascot. And it was on an eight and a half by 11 sheet of green paper. And you know, like, type things on my dad's typewriter and I copy it literally copied and pasted like literally like gluing and putting it on there and he would uh and so he'd xerox it for me at the funeral home and um yeah and then actually a really cool thing was I came back so when we were graduating from high school each of the elementary schools in town had uh, receptions for the graduating seniors for which elementary school you'd gone to, and it was still being published. Um, they, they'd upgraded to an actual, like, you know, tabloid style newspaper, but that was a really cool thing to see. And I just always enjoyed writing, and uh, and I had some really good English teachers and language arts teachers, especially one in eighth grade, Miss Johnson, who she knew that I liked to write. And I think I just asked a lot of questions in class. And I remember her saying, you know, have you ever thought about journalism? And so I think that's probably the first time I actually started thinking about it as a career. And I just got kind of involved with, um, you know, yearbook. And then I, again, my dad knew the people at the local paper. So um, I actually worked there in the summers um, as well, sort of writing feature stories and different things. So I started doing that when I was um, 15. And I guess, you know, we were always sort of interested in politics too. My family was, well, my parents were pretty conservative. I grew up in like a pretty conservative Southern Baptist home. Uh, And I was in second grade again, second grade was apparently a pretty formative year. We had new neighbors that moved into town 
that lived right next to us and they moved from Arkansas to open the Walmart in town. And they'd come from the Walmart headquarters, so they knew the Clintons and were delegates for them. And, you know, I'm an impressionable seven-year-old and they're bringing me things back from the convention. I mean, you know, when Al Gore, our senator, was the, was the you know, his running mate and stuff too. So I thought it was really cool. They brought me back photos. I got to watch the convention. I knew that they were there. Um, you know, and then I apparently started running around church telling everybody we were voting for Bill Clinton, which my parents were definitely not. Um, however, I did successfully lobby my second grade teacher again to let us eat lunch in our classroom so that we could watch the inauguration. <laughs> That's an amazing background. Uh, so <laughs> later in your career, you uh, worked at NPR, which mm-hmm. some people regard as a reliable source of news, while others view it a little more critically as kind of a left-wing publication. What was your experience working for NPR as a journalist, and why do you think NPR has this reputation? So I think there's some misunderstanding of what sort of public media means, um, in fact, I'm actually wearing an NPR shirt right now as I'm recording this. <laughs> I was there for five years. And, you know, I've worked at a bunch of news organizations in my career, um, NBC, The Hill, National Journal, and Politico. And I will say NPR had the most, I think, checks and balances in a way in order of making sure that our work was fair of you know, we were very, we realized that we had a public mission. And I think people think, oh, well, it's funded mostly by taxpayer dollars. That's not true. It's a very small amount of money that comes from the government. And mostly it goes to local stations where um, broadcasting options are limited and they rely on news and breaking news for, you know, security purposes in many instances. And then they would pay us for it. So I think the fact that so it was largely by donations and, again, the donations that the member stations comprise. And I think just knowing that people are willing to give um, because they appreciate what you do been a lot. Um, we really sort of saw ourselves as um, for the public and supported by the public. And I think that other places didn't have that feeling. Again, you know, we had a standard and practices editor. We have very, very, very rigorous corrections policies. Um, it was, it, it, there was a, and the most discussions I would have, um, you know, it wasn't, a, there was obviously breaking news that we covered. And I think that's increased over the past, you know, four or five years, certainly. Um, but there were also like very serious discussions of why are we doing this story? What do we hope to prove or do it. So I think it, it was a very thoughtful place to work. And I think it's, um, you know, I loved my five years there. I loved everyone that I work with. And I think everyone that works there just has a real heart for telling the story. And in, in surveys and things that have been done and analysis of journalism, NPR is consistently rated one of the most trusted sources of news and really sort of down the middle. So while you're going to have detractors from I mean, we got it from the left and the right. I think that our audience, though, was when you look at who listeners are, many of them are college educated or hold multiple degrees. And so sometimes we would get letters or emails saying, you know, why are you having Republicans on the program? <laughs> or why are you why aren't you calling them out on this? So I think it was sometimes even people saying that we were too conciliatory one way or the other. So now in your current role as the Senate and governor's editor for the Cook Political Report, 
What do you see as the major differences between covering politics on the statewide level versus nationally? Um, you know, what we do at Cook is sort of a hybrid. It's I still consider it journalism because it's the foundation. I use the same foundations, but we're looked to as analysts as well. So I'm getting to step back. I'm not having to put out something every day. I can really dig into the races. And, you know, we're the oldest handicapping organization for these four congressional Senate and governor's races. Um, and it is... So I'm getting to talk with, you know, if you're a reporter, typically you just get to talk with press secretaries or something. I'm getting to talk with sources that work deeper in campaigns, campaign managers or strategists. And um, I'm getting to see information that journalists typically wouldn't get. And it's been a weird sort of reversal because I'm also called upon by reporters a lot to comment on things. Um, for their own stories. So it's a, that's been a weird thing where, you know, I'm having to think, okay, let me say this on the record, but I can tell you this on background, um, trying to phrase my words in a certain way that if I were right, and I think I also do understand the pressures they're under. I try to get back to people um, very quickly because I realize they are under a deadline because I've been under that deadline. Um, and I mean, yeah, we're looking at national trends, but we're also, you know, I, I talk to a variety of sources in states to make sure what is happening. Um, you know, I think in a normal year, I would have wanted to travel some, but that obviously couldn't happen this year. So we've held a lot of Zoom sessions um, and it's it, it's very, I really enjoy it. This is, I think, melded together my passion of journalism, but also politics. And I I really like getting into sort of the nitty gritty of politics at a more granular level that sometimes is harder to do when you're at a national organization that is trying to tell a story in, you know, three, four minutes versus I can write a 1500 word analysis piece on one single Senate race. <laughs> that's what they want me to do. And that's how nerdy I, I really am about politics too. <laughs> yeah. As, as you just mentioned, for someone who specializes in covering elections, this is a very exciting time. Uh, but before we talk through the 2020 elections, we want to know, what do you do during the off years and what does that look like for you? <laughs> um, I'm literally today looking at the 2022 maps and beginning our ratings. So, I mean, it's begun. Um, uh, you know, the we have the Georgia runoffs from me covering the Senate that we will have for, you know, about another two months and different things. But um, we, we are, we're, you know, we're seeing candidates that are getting in, um, talking with, uh, you know, sources. And we, we, this is the time when we will talk to a lot of candidates. We'll interview them again. Typically, this would be in person. We'll see how much longer all of this goes on. Of course, I, I anticipate that for a while longer it will be virtual and different things. Um, and then there's, you know, there's races during off years. There are special elections that happen. Inevitably, with a new president coming in, there will be members of Congress that are picked for his cabinet, and that triggers special elections. Um, there are two governor's races uh, next year happening in New Jersey and in Virginia, especially that's going to be a really hard-fought one. Um, we also have redistricting coming up. <laughs> this is the, you know, uh, you know, the the 10-year redrawing of the line. So that's something that we'll be watching very closely as well. So while it's not certainly as stressful and as um, I, as busy as we were, as I have been, you know, the past few months, 
there's no shortage of things to cover. It is sort of a time to sort of go back to the basics, talk with people, figure out what's going on. Yeah, for sure. So as of today's recording, um, it's the afternoon of Tuesday, November 10th. Joe Biden is widely projected as being the winner of the presidential race and control of the Senate is still unknown. So tell us about your election night. Um, As the results were starting to roll in, did anything surprise you? And what were you really looking out for? Um, Well, first of all, it was a very strange election night because it's the first one in my career I haven't been in a newsroom. And I was really, really sad and upset about that (laughs) Um, because I love being in a newsroom, especially on election night. You feed off of the energy of everybody. It is just all hands on deck. You're staying up all night. Um, No one's getting any sleep, but you're kind of doing it all together. Um, And I I was here in my house where, you know, I've been for the past several months, Um, although I was doing C-SPAN election night coverage and I thought initially I was just, you know, going to be doing it here through the computer, but they actually decided they wanted to bring a camera woman out here. So I did have a camera woman here. Her name was Christine. She was lovely. So I wasn't completely alone, um, (laughs) at least. Um, And I was doing hits on that, you know, about once or twice every hour. But I'm watching, you know, we had the states that came in early, Florida, and I think we kind of knew okay, if Florida goes, the race is essentially over and we're expecting sort of a blue tsunami. And that's the feeling, at least in mid-October, that's the feeling we were getting where things were kind of headed. Um, we felt like North Carolina would come in early, Georgia could, and if those races, especially the Senate races went, then that was going to be a really bad night for Republicans, but that didn't happen. And I think that um, more than anything, it did feel a lot like 2016, where the data that we had seen was off. It was off in Democratic polling. It was off in public polling. It was off in Republican polling. Now, Republican polling was closer to it, I will say. Um, But Republicans I was talking to before the election, even in the week before, didn't expect that they'd hold on to North Carolina Senate. Um, Tom Tillis, everyone was surprised that Susan Collins won. She outran the president by seven points, which is unheard of really in recent elections in 2016 every single senate race broke the same way as the presidential results so far her race is the only one that has broken from that we'll see what happens with those two georgia races um and so i'm you know kind of getting worried (laughs) you know were what happened with the data where our predictions way off what else could happen um, when I step back and look at my Senate predictions, um, you know, I predicted that we were going, that Democrats were going to gain between two and seven seats. Um, I think, though, that most of us expected it would be on that higher end, though, because Democrats had so many paths to the majority. They had 12 seats that we rated as competitive versus just two for um, 12 Republican held seats that were competitive versus just two Democratic held seats. Um, and really the only ones that flipped are the ones that we Republican held seats that we rated as lean Democratic, which were Colorado and Arizona. We had seven races in our toss-up column. And we do see historically that those toss-up races break for the party that's having the better night. And really in everything except the presidential race, it was Republicans um, that were having the better night. And so all of those races broke toward Republicans. Um, again, the two Georgia races is still outstanding, but that just tells you, I think it, it does show the trends of where things are. So we weren't necessarily off. We were just on the lower end of our projections. But I do think, you know, there will be some, there's already some hand ran by pollsters and sort of, you know, I think the question is, because the 2018 polling was pretty on the mark. Um, 
is it these years that President Trump is on the ballot that he has such a unique coalition that it's hard for pollsters to quantify that, to reach those voters? Um, I think there's something to that. I do now. Even pollsters that thought that they had recalibrated their polling you know, in that blue wall, um, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, uh, um, I mean, I think very clearly um, Joe Biden is still going to win those but by much smaller margins than polling had predicted. Um, and so that had implications, certainly at the Senate level. Um, it also had implications for the House, though, too. I mean, uh, one of my colleagues had projected Democrats were going to gain seats and Republicans are now going to gain seats. So it was a lot of the congressional level data that I think we put a lot of faith in, because even in 2016, the congressional level data was showing warning signs in those upper, upper Midwestern states. Um, but now... I mean, that's another reason why we trusted it going into this. That it was right and it sort of showed it, predicted it in 2016. It was right in 2018, but this year it was off in many places. Um, so it was a kind of a confusing election night for sure, I think. But um, I do think in the end, from people I've talked to and from sort of the data that I've looked at, that this sort of check and balance argument the Republicans were beginning to make near the end worked that I think the Democrats are, I think the Republicans had a hard time with branding Joe Biden as sort of some extreme socialist, but um, that could have worked at the congressional level. And that if voters wanted to vote against President Trump in 2018, the only way they had to do that was voting against his party in a midterm year. Versus now they could vote against him, but they could also vote for their Republican member of Congress or Senator if they liked them. So it is sort of a split decision in a way, but you know, again, now it comes down to Georgia, and I, I think that we have clearly seen there some hesitancy from voters to hand Democrats all levers of the government, and that's why I think I would give a slight edge to Republicans in these Georgia races. But there's we're still a long way to go, and what, what where we end up with those two races. Yeah, so speaking of Georgia, um, that's kind of the big race coming up. And in your analysis, what factors, if any, might play a bigger role in shaping the outcomes between the next two months or so? Turnout. Turnout is what's going to be key here. Um, I think the Democrats thought that, again, with presidential-level turnout, they had a very good chance of winning at least the regular election outright, um, we always sort of knew that the special election there, the one with appointed Senator Kelly Leffler, was going to go to a runoff because you had 20 candidates, and that's virtually impossible to get a majority of the votes. But in the regular election, I think that, again, Democrats and Republicans were seeing, you know, better – Democrats were seeing better poll numbers. Republicans were seeing worrying poll numbers across the board in Georgia, and clearly, clearly that bore out at the presidential level. Um I think that when I look at the data, though, you have Purdue very narrowly running ahead of Donald Trump in the state. Um, he beat Ossoff by about two points, but Ossoff underperformed Joe Biden by about 100,000 votes. So there are some drop-off voters he has to win. He has to convince Democrats. Um, and then in the, re in the other election, um, Kelly Loeffler ran very far to the right from the candidate she was initially appointed to be, which was someone that would appeal to the changing Atlanta suburbs. 
um, the Gwinnett, the Cobb counties that had once been very solidly Republican, but were now changing and had um, gone against Trump very big in 16 and then in the 18 midterms as well. And because she had the challenge from Doug Collins, she sort of had to move so far to the right. Um, I mean, she was even running ads. I'm more conservative than Attila the Hun. Um, and she's appearing with QAnon candidates. That's not typically something you would do if you're, when you're running in what is really now a purple state. Um, does she move back to the middle? Um, when I added up all of the Republican candidates and the numbers that they got with the Democrats, Republicans outperformed Democrats by about one point. Still very close. And this is where turnout is key. And that's why I think you've seen this week even with, listen, I look at the Georgian results um, and I have to admit, I was shocked yesterday when uh, Senator Perdue and Senator Leffler put out the statement calling on the Republican Secretary of State, Brad Ruffisberger, to resign, saying that he had you know, not pursued claims of ballot fraud or had not been transparent. When in fact, he's held multiple press briefings um, he's been very transparent, one of the most transparent secretaries of states during this process, and that they also failed to produce any valid evidence of fraud with these claims. But I think it's you have to have the Trump base with you that they can't win without that. And I'm also not sure that we talked about that, whether the Trump base is transferable. This is essentially a special election. Is it transferable to that? Will those voters, especially if they are dejected that Trump has lost, are they still going to turn out? You have to find some way to rile them up. Um, we know that Vice President Pence is going down there. I certainly think we'll see a lot of sort of 2024 hopefuls go down there. Ted Cruz, Marco Rubio, you'll see a lot of candidates go. And I have, I'm sure that President-elect Biden, Vice President-elect Kamala Harris, former President Obama will go down for Democrats. I mean, this is gonna be ground zero. Um, but does Trump is my question. Um, he, he's a very transactional person. And if he is no longer going to be in the white house, what is the benefit to him to win, to keep the Senate if he himself has lost? So that's a question I'm watching. I'm not entirely sure that he will. It certainly would help Republicans if he did, but, um, and will Democrats, because they felt like they were such locks on the Senate before, are they going to turn out in even bigger numbers or, you know, so there's a lot of questions, but I think it comes down to whichever side turns their base out the most, because we very clearly see that Georgia is a very divided state um, is going to win there. So moving on to the broader role of American media, how do you maintain the reputation of the Cook Political Report as a credible source amidst such a polarized political landscape? I think social media has often made that hard. Um, I also made a very conscious decision when I entered this field that I didn't want to work for a partisan news organization. I never have. Um, I really think that I wanted to get into journalism because I didn't feel very strongly about one side or the other. I felt very strongly about getting information out there, about reporting on things. Um, so I've never really felt a pull to be on one side or the other. Um, but in the past few years, when you have just the questioning of what is, what are facts, um, the demonization of media, it's been hard. And I think at Cook, because we are more analysts, we can sort of call things spade a spade often because that's our analysis, but it's not coming from a place of bias at all. It's coming from our informed research as well. 
so I think that I am a little freer in what I can say, but I, I'm not, again, I'm not coming from a place of bias. And um, I mean, people will question that and they question the media all the time. I think that's part of the territory. Um, but, <laughs> you know, sometimes when President Trump has, you know, said they just make all these things up, my life would be a lot easier and I would have a lot more free time on my hands if I could just make things up. I will tell you that I would just be, you know, making things up and like watching Netflix all day, but that's not the case. <laughs> so, you know, reporters put a lot of time and effort into their work. And I think all of us see this as a vital part of the democratic process of why we went into this. And, you know, I've been really proud that I have I have very good sources and I feel like I'm respected by both Republicans and Democrats. And that's very important to me. And I think the political report is as well on both sides of the aisle. As a follow up, either from the perspective of journalism or just in general, what is the future of covering elections? Which parts of the electoral process do you think 2020 changes? one thing that could change and that I think would be better, and we're already seeing more news organizations sort of push to this, I think one thing that's made us more partisan in the past you know, few years is the death of local journalism, local news sites, newspapers shutting down in local communities. Um, and there is a feeling that, you know, journalists sort of are either in D.C. or New York and that they don't sort of have a pulse on the rest of America. Um but with the pandemic, I think we've proven that you could do your job from anywhere as long as you have Wi-Fi and a computer and a video camera. <laughs> um, and so I'm, and I will be interested to see because I know when I was in NPR, there was like a big push against working from home. You needed to come into the office every day, and now they're you know broadcasting shows where virtually everyone is at home. They've had to move, and t- TV's had to move. You know. Um, I certainly didn't expect that my guest bedroom was going to have to become a de facto TV studio for the past few months. So that's been really strange. Um, but um, so will people, will there be a push to put reporters in different parts of the country so that they can understand them better? So they don't feel like reporters are sort of parachuting in. I think that could be a good thing. Also, you know, housing prices are a lot cheaper outside of Washington and New York um, and things too. So you know, we are seeing some, you know, there's some local news sites that have nonprofits, especially that are doing that. Um, I know the 19th, a woman focus, uh, uh, you know, a, a women focused pr- um, publication that's popped that came up this year. They are putting people in different places around the country. Um, NPR does that with their local stations, but they're also opening news hubs in different places in different areas of the country. Um And I think you are seeing larger newspapers do that as well. So I think that's important to continue and that you can't just travel to these places. Maybe you need to be there for longer. Yeah, that's excellent insight. So now we're going to move on to our lightning round. So first question, we know you're passionate about good TV shows. What is your favorite at the moment? Um, I have been binging Law and Order, re-binging Law and Order old episodes recently. That's what's gotten me through. I really love true crime. Um, maybe it's a you know byproduct of growing up in a funeral home or something. <laughs> There's a little bit of like my girl there, um, but I I love true crime and you know Dateline or different things like that. So. <laughs> Yeah, um, 2020 has been a wild year, but we want to know what has been the best thing to happen to you this year. I think just, you know, I started to cook at the beginning of the year and this was my dream job. So I think just getting this job and I love it. And 
Um, I think it's just reinforced that this type of journalism and analysis is what I want to do. So, you know, that happened in January. And then I think I was in our offices for about two, three weeks and then everything's at home. So, yeah. (laughs) Well, that's good. That's at least something to be thankful for. So next question, obviously excluding fly on the wall, what is your second favorite podcast or one that you would recommend to our listeners to check out? Um, so the one that I've been obsessed with this year is called Wicked Game, and it goes through every single presidential race in history, um, like from George Washington to now. Um, and I've learned so many fascinating things. I didn't know that much about the presidential elections in the 1800s and all of these different presidents that, you know, you kind of gloss over, like Grover Cleveland or William McKinley. So I've learned a lot and they're really well told. Um, the host is Lindsey Graham, not the senator. Um, <laughs> uh, but it's really well told and it's really intri- it's, it's just It's like a radio drama almost that they're talking about these presidents and their running mates and sort of the climate. So I highly recommend that one. That's really interesting. Um, so our last question is with Thanksgiving coming up, what is your favorite Thanksgiving side? Um, I tweeted this yesterday and I've been told it isn't a side, but I'm going to maintain that it is. And it is deviled eggs. I love deviled eggs. You know, I am a Southerner at heart. Um, it is not a Thanksgiving meal if they're not deviled eggs to me. <laughs> I agree. Well, thank you so much, Jessica, for joining us this week. Thank you for having me. Thanks for tuning into another episode of Fly on the Wall. Make sure you follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Fly on the Wall Pod or email us at flyonthewallpodcast at gmail.com. Join us next week for our last podcast of season eight.